Hello and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 164. I am your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me is my co-host and nemesis, Pete Mashad. I am Error. No, you're Pete. But, nonetheless, we are back once again to talk about what's going on in the world of Nintendo. That includes some game impressions, it includes some news, and of course there's also this week's big topic, which is going to be Nintendo's biggest blunders. Chris, we can't talk about that. (laughs) Oh yes we can, and we will. But, before we get to that, we're going to start out with some game impressions, specifically a game that came out earlier this month, the strategy game Wargroove for Nintendo Switch. That's right. Chris, have you managed to play this game yet? I actually have not. You know, obviously it's been highly anticipated and I've been paying attention to it, but I have not picked it up yet myself. But Pete, I know that you have, so I am very interested to hear what you have to say about this long-awaited title. Yeah, um, you know, as you mentioned, it is long awaited Mm -hmm. and I've been playing probably about somewhere in the neighborhood of like five hours, five to seven hours. Okay. So Wargroove is an Advance Wars, old school Fire Emblem type turn-based strategy game. Right. And it is in fact not a rhythm game, though you might be (laughs) mistaken based on the name. You know, to be honest, I was actually wondering about that (laughs) if the name Groove actually had any implications to the gameplay. I assumed it didn't from everything I've seen, but I'm like, why is it called Wargroove? It sounds like there's some sort of rhythm element. So is there anything at all like that? Is there a reason for the name Wargroove? Yeah, actually, so the reason why the game is called Wargroove is because each time you play, you have a hero on the board who is like sort of your commander. Mm -hmm. Just like in Advance Wars? Not a Hoffmander, but yes, just like Advance Wars. Although in this game, you actually can use your commander on the board. He's an actual, like, a hero character. Okay, okay. Amongst your other units. So you can actually build up your groove by dispatching enemies with that hero. Okay. So you'll basically want to use that character to, like, finish off enemies as you sort of whittle them down in health. Mm-hmm. So that builds up some sort of groove meter that you can unleash on your opponents? That's right, your war groove. <laughs> uh-huh. As you'd expect, different heroes kind of have different abilities, and they really do come in handy. I think one lets all the units around it take another turn. Oh, boy. Or one throws up a, uh, you know, a defense. He throws up? That's disgusting. <laughs> one throws up a defense shield. Oh, okay. That lasts a few turns, and then one of them just heals units that are nearby. Okay. To name a few. Those do sound helpful. Yeah, so you start the game with a prologue, and that sort of continues with a storyline that starts to unfold primarily with in-game conversations and charming 16-bit cutscenes mm-hmm. that take place before and after each level. Okay. The loose plot line is that you're a warrior princess named Mercia, mm-hmm. not to be confused with a battle princess, driven from your homeland after the unexpected passing of your father. Okay. You're being helped by your father's right-hand wise man, Emmerich, And your trusty armor-clad dog, Caesar. Oh, who doesn't love an armor-clad dog? Yeah, and he actually fights. He's a commander in the game. (laughs) Nice. You're led on this quest, making some allies as you travel across the land, and obviously enemies too. The villains are all very quirky, and, you know, they border kind of on the supernatural. But their banter is hilarious, but they also sort of invoke a little bit of fear. Hmm. Like, the bad guy is, like, a really bad guy. When he shows up, like, it starts raining on the map, and I don't know. I'm terrified. It kind of sounds a little bit like uh, Valkyria Chronicles, actually. They have uh, similar traits when the enemy commanders show up, yeah. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, other than that, you'd pretty much expect the game to play and look a lot like Advance Wars. 
I mean, I don't know how else to describe it because it really feels like it kind of just steals that universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's looked like from everything they've shown in the trailers and previews. Right, but that's not a bad thing at all because uh, no, if, not at all. if you like that style and if you like the you know the overall aesthetic, there's going to be plenty to love here. Yeah, and it's not like Nintendo's exactly pumping out Advance Wars games left <laughs> and right now. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a huge hole to fill. Mm -hmm. I guess the other biggest thing I could tell you about is that there are a ton of modes in this game that I haven't even touched and I feel bad about that. <laughs> but essentially you have your main campaign, right? then there's sort of this arcade mode that unlocks. And the arcade mode, from what I can tell, is instead of having like this serious plot, it's very loosey-goosey and you fight different people that you aren't necessarily enemies with. Okay. And it's very straightforward. It's like, you know, take over this other opponent. In the game, there are different scenarios and there's the main campaign along that trail. You actually get these side missions, and they're actually really fun. Like one of them involves like the dog, like <laughs> basically trying to take over a fortress from bandits. Okay. And uh, you do that twice, and both times it's really funny. But they're actually not super easy either. Those sound fun though. Yeah, it is. And I'd also say just a little bit on the challenge level, it actually lets you go in and uh, tinker with the difficulty to a point where I've never really seen in a game. So or at least not a console game, you can go in and change the amount of damage received. Okay. You can tinker the income you get, because obviously that lets you buy more units. Mm -hmm. And then you can also go in and tinker the groove charge. So you can you beef all these up to like 300%. So you're just like unstoppable. Burn money a lot faster, build up your meter a lot faster. Yeah, and exactly. And around me is a lot faster. Okay. So if there's anything you get really stuck on, I'm sure being able to adjust those, you'd be able to get past it. Mm -hmm. But I will say, you start off, and I remember thinking, is this game going to get harder? And then it quickly does. You get to a point where it's like, oh, yeah, it is hard. Now, the one thing that's different from Advance Wars is that it's not exactly set in modern times with modern military. It's more a fantasy setting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in that respect, you know, it kind of is like Fire Emblem, but mm -hmm. it's not as, like, serious-themed as... It, it, imagine, like, the way Advance Wars is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's like that, but in fantasy setting. Right, right. But more than that, I was just wondering if there are any especially interesting units you've encountered so far. You know, honestly, the units, not so much. I mean, it's kind of what you'd expect. You know, as you play through, there are more and more classes that are unlocked. There's not a ton, but I think there's probably in the neighborhood of like 12 to 15. Yeah, that's not bad. I think what really does make it stand out is the way the heroes respond. Because, of course, the enemy has heroes that also have moves that they get to use. their war grooves. Of course. And, yeah, it can really throw a wrench in your plans. Uh-huh. Now, you mentioned all those modes a little bit ago. Have you tried out any of the other ones? Like, I know there's supposed to be a lot of multiplayer stuff and, like, even the ability to make your own custom maps. Yeah, so there is a multiplayer mode I have not played yet. It looks like it's four-player local okay. or two-player online, All right, which is a pretty cool feature, mm -hmm. which I've not played. But then I also saw that there is a map builder, as you mentioned. Right. And you can both build and share over the interwebs, apparently. Oh, nice, nice. There's also a ton of unlockables. Like, every time you finish a mission, there's, like, you know, it tells you what you've unlocked. And there's a big codex that has all this, like, deep lore about each character and huh. the uh, faction that it's from. And you can kind of read about that. And it, it really does have quite a storyline. There is um, some interesting stuff going on in the background. So, totally worth checking out if you're into that kind of stuff. All right, very cool. Sounds pretty extensive. Yeah, and then I heard that the developer is very open to changes and stuff. They've already promised some updates, you know, just little refinements to make the game better. Very cool. Anything else we should know about it? 
One other great thing that isn't typical of a lot of turn-based strategy is that you can literally save the game at any time. Oh, convenient. I know that sounds funny, but yeah, a lot of games, for some reason, you can't. You have to wait till like the end of your game, or you have to start from scratch. So yeah, none of that here. Yeah, again, that's something that the Valkyria Chronicles lets you do as well. So again, seems to be taking a few uh, cues from that title, yeah, hmm. which is not a bad thing either. Not a bad thing at all. Yeah, so I don't know how much actual playthrough time the campaign takes, but I'm going to... Supposedly it's pretty big. Yeah, I'm going to guess it's fairly substantial. I bet you it would take most people, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 hours plus. Really? The numbers I've seen are actually claiming to be a lot longer than that. It's absolutely possible. I just kind of, you know, looking at the map, trying to figure out what I think. Like I said, there's a bunch of side quests. Yeah, there's even a mode I haven't even unlocked yet called Puzzle, which I'm not really even sure how that works, but I'm all for it. Yeah, definitely sounds like it could be interesting. As far as the aesthetic goes, I'm in love with this game. I mean, I think that just the storyline and the way the characters are so dang cute is compelling, and I recommend this game to anybody. Okay, very cool. Have you formed any opinion about the music or anything like that? Well, I do know that there's a jukebox in the game, and it does let you play some like 50 tracks or something that looks like that you can unlock in arcade mode. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I'm actually really digging the soundtrack. I don't think it necessarily stands out. It's like the Game of Thrones theme or something, but it definitely has like some upbeat tempo that gets you, you know, your blood pumping for some good action. So very fitting and maintains that whole uh, 16-bit facade. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if you're going to give this game a score on a old Nintendo Power rating scale from 1 to 10, what would you give it at this point? Honestly, I'd have to give it like a 9. All right. Awesome. That is some high praise indeed. Glad to hear you're enjoying it. Yeah, it's a lot of game for, uh, I think, 20 bucks asking price. So Very cool. I don't go for turn-based strategy games all the time, but from what you've said about this one, this one certainly sounds very worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, the best praise I can give it is like if this came out and it was said it was made by intelligent systems, I wouldn't bat an eye. I wouldn't think anything differently. So that's the highest praise I can give it. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Met your expectations. Uh, With that said, then, why don't we move along and talk about some news? So first up in the news this week, we have a not exactly 100% confirmed story that Assassin's Creed 3 Remastered is on its way to Switch. Ooh. Yeah, it's fun. You know, I was looking at my shelf of Wii U games a week or two ago, and I was like, man, there's so many of these that have come over to Switch now. But, you know, the first one alphabetically on my list is Assassin's Creed 3. I'm like, well, that one's probably not coming out to Switch anytime soon. Well, guess what? Apparently, I was very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, from the looks of things, it's going to be Assassin's Creed 3 along with Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation, which was originally released on PlayStation Vita before coming to home consoles. And these are both going to be bundled together and released on one Switch game card. Now, we don't know for sure because originally this popped up on a website and then there was a press release about the game, but it didn't mention Switch. And then apparently just in the last couple of days, it showed up on Ubisoft's website being listed as coming out for Switch. So... It could still be a mistake. We don't know 100% for sure. But by most accounts, it looks like Assassin's Creed 3 will indeed be on Switch, bringing all of its American revolutionary action to the console. 
Yeah, I mean, this seems like a, a kind of a no-brainer, if it's true, because Ubisoft seems to be making pretty good money with Nintendo Switch. Yeah, they've had some pretty good support so far, and they are bringing it to other systems, too. I mean, we know it's not like something that's only for Switch, so if they're doing it for other systems, and this is not exactly a cutting-edge current-gen game, there's no reason it shouldn't be able to come to Switch, so it seems pretty darn reasonable to me. Yeah, and it seems like Ubi has definitely invested in the Snowdrop engine, I believe, so it does seem like they are thinking about bringing more games to Switch. Now, did you play this one on its previous consoles? No, I I have not played this one, but it gives me reason to play it if it does come to Switch. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, to be honest, I actually never played that far into the version I have on Wii U. So uh, if I don't feel like firing up that version, maybe this would be the game to uh, get me back into Assassin's Creed 3. I don't know. Yeah, and I kind of wonder, what will the price point of this game be? Good question. It could be cheap, like 30 bucks, or since it's two games in one, I could see it being 50 I guess we'll just have to see. Yes, we will. Now, speaking of some older games being ported to Switch, have you heard the news about all these classic Dungeons & Dragons games coming out to the system? Yeah, I have heard some rumors about that. Well, it's not a rumor. It is confirmed. Oh. The publisher at Skybound Games and the folks at Beamdog have announced that there are not one, not two, not three, but six older Dungeons & Dragons action RPGs on the way to Nintendo Switch and other consoles. And by that, I mean Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Baldur's Gate Siege of Dragonspear, Icewind Dale, Planescape Torment, and Neverwinter Nights. And all of those, all six of them, are supposed to be out sometime in 2019. (laughs) And that's kind of insane. (laughs) Now, is it all in one game, or is it six separate games? No, it is six separate releases. Wow. But, I mean, even one of those games is plenty. You know, that's a lot of content right there. Yeah, yeah, that is a lot. I mean, when you take all six of them together, that's like, you know, probably a thousand hours of gameplay or something ridiculous like that. So, <laughs> There's not enough time in the universe to complete all six of those games. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those were mostly PC-based games. They aren't something that I have really ever spent any time with. I'm not super familiar with any of them. But obviously, I know they have a big fan base. I know that lots of people enjoy those titles. And Pete, as far as I know, you are amongst that fan base. Yeah, I definitely like games like that. I can honestly tell you, though, I haven't played any of those. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, I was always kind of a PC gamer. And then there was a time where I didn't have a PC And so I just kind of didn't play games like that as much as I thought about it and wanted to. So I got to say, the fact that these are coming for Switch is a big deal to me. Okay. So you're very likely to pick up at least a few of them, huh? Yeah, I guess part of it depends, you know, what the price is. You know, I'm a... I'm not made of money here, Chris. And uh, <laughs> and the other thing is, is you know, are they good ports? Does these come out well? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping they do. Skybound does pretty good stuff. So um, yeah. if everything checks out, yeah, I'm all in on this. Cool. Good to hear. Like I said, I've really never played them myself. So this would be a very cool opportunity. Don't know for sure if I'll go all in, but I would certainly love the opportunity to finally check these out. Yeah, I can really see this being popular amongst people that have played these games before on PC because now you have the option to take it on the go. Yeah, it seems like super convenient for multiplayer sessions. Yeah, and I really wouldn't be surprised to hear that the Switch version outsells all of the versions on this. Yeah, that could totally be true as well. I mean, 
I'll be honest, I'll be surprised if all six of them really do come out this year, because that really just seems like overkill. <laughs> but, you know, bring those out over a span of two years, you know, give us three of them this year, or even only two of them this year. But anyway, regardless of exactly what the time frame is, it's still, you know, pretty awesome news to see all these on the way. Yeah, I almost got to go back and read the reviews of these games to see which one is the one I need to buy. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. In other Switch news, perhaps one of the strangest bits of news in recent memory is hearing that Microsoft is bringing Xbox Live to Switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost a head-scratcher when you first read this thing. Yeah, I mean, they haven't really divulged too many details, so when you first hear about this, you're like, what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, seriously. You're like, uh, is Microsoft acquiring Nintendo? <laughs> or the other way around? Yeah. Uh, no, that is not the case. And it's also not the case that every game on Xbox Live is coming to Switch or anything like that. But, you know, it means that you'll be able to have access to your Xbox profile and your friends list and your gamer score on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, I assume that also means there's going to be some more cross-play and you'll probably be able to you know unlock achievements even if you're just playing a version of the game on switch that has an xbox live counterpart but uh you know beyond that is, is that all there is going to be to it it's hard to say yeah i mean i think from just like stepping back and looking at this i think it actually makes a lot of sense that microsoft is sort of leading the charge with this well i mean i think it makes a lot of sense for microsoft i can totally see why they would do it because i mean switch has kind of taken the world by storm Every time a new game comes out, people are like, oh, is it going to be on Switch? That's the thing they're asking about. <laughs> so for Microsoft to like come on here and extend its reach out of its traditional ecosystem and put it on Switch so people are seeing, you know, an Xbox app on the Nintendo system. I mean, to them, I think that's, you know, brilliant. I mean, basically, it's the same thing that Nintendo is doing with mobile. You know, they're putting their brand out there on a mobile device in the interest of attracting people's attention. And then they'll be like, oh, this looks cool. I love Nintendo. I want Nintendo now. And, you know, Microsoft is apparently trying to do the same thing. I think they're going to be like, okay, Switch owners, here, please, now come over to us. Buy an Xbox One now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there might be some of that for sure. But at the same time, I think gamers win in this scenario because uh, now, you know, your account can transfer across uh, different games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely benefits to the user. That's for sure. Yeah, so it's interesting, especially considering that, like, you know, Sony still won't allow this to happen. Yeah, they're still being the difficult ones. It's kind of interesting to see Nintendo being like, oh, yeah, come on in, you know, eat our candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, if I were Nintendo, I would be weird. I'd be like, no, I don't know if I want them doing this to come over here and, <laughs> you know, start trying to pull their audience away and take them over to... Uh, the Xbox ecosystem. But like we said, you know, it does make a lot of sense in a lot of ways for a lot of customers and for a lot of people involved. So yeah, it could be very interesting. I am impressed to see Nintendo kind of being forward thinking about this and allowing it to happen. From everything I heard, you know, Sony continues to just kind of say no to cross-platform play. And I think ultimately that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're moving a little bit. Some of the games that they were really sticklers on, I think, are fully cross-platform now. But for once, it's not Nintendo that's being very stubborn. They're actually, you know, really trying to move things forward, which is a nice change of pace. Anyway, we'll be finding out more about this at the Game Developers Conference in March. There will be more details divulged then. 
Yeah, I think you can actually say Sony doesn't what Nintendo do. Uh, sure, something like that. <laughs> One last bit of news I wanted to talk about is that during the quarterly Nintendo financial discussions, uh, Nintendo made some comment about how they are currently working on an unannounced Switch game that will come out later this year that will, quote, make everyone happy. <laughs> As to what that could be, Pete, obviously, you don't know. Obviously, I don't know. Nintendo knows, but they aren't talking yet. But just speculating, guessing, hoping, what would you like this game to be? I mean, well, first off, that's really lofty goals. It makes everyone happy. I don't think anything <laughs> makes everyone happy. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of people. Everyone is quite a number of people. <laughs> yeah, there aren't really too many franchises you could say that about that would appeal to young and old and casual and hardcore and fans of different genres. So it's got to be something with a lot of broad appeal. Yeah, maybe like a Wii Music 2. <laughs> Somehow I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, this is a hard one. I it, You could almost speculate that it's anything. I mean, obviously... The first thing I think of when I think of making everyone happy would be like something like Animal Crossing. Well, we already know about we that. We already know about that, right. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, I don't have any speculation as to what it really could be, but you know what I would hope it would be, what I really want it to be. You know, when they say everyone, I don't really take that literally. I think <laughs> of it as something that will make a lot of fans happy. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe a new Zelda game, you know, sort of a, a side story, sort of the Majora's Mask mm -hmm. to... Uh, you know, Breath of the Wild, you know, the, the side story spinoff yep. kind of thing that uses the same engine. Like it. Or, you know, my hope amongst hopes, a game that you could say, quote, everybody has been wanting for a long time is Mother 3. So that's what I would hope it would be. But I'm not going to say that's what I really think it's going to be. But <laughs> that would be my hope. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah, those are good. I guess for me, well, maybe it's the Metroid Prime trilogy that they've been rumored to be hanging on to for a while. Yeah, I suppose that's a possibility, too. Okay, then. That does it for the news this week. Why don't we move along to some listener mail? This first letter comes from listener Becky Rudranath, and she writes, Chris and Pete, I loved your latest podcast topic and wanted to bring up some video game food writing that's my personal favorite. <laughs> the stove descriptions in the Golden Sun games. Every area you visit has their own regional cuisine. At one point, you are horrified to discover someone's cooking insect larvae, but it smells so delicious. <laughs> one game that made me try a new dish because of it was Virtue's Last Reward. Fee mentions eating twice-cooked pork, which made me seek it out and try it at my local Chinese restaurant. It's very good, but depending on where you go, it can also be extremely spicy. I also tried making a cream soda, which is the drink Tenmyoji buys Quark in the original Japanese version. Instead of being made with root beer, you make it with green melon soda. Wow. Finally, have you seen the monster curry from Breath of the Wild that was given out as a raffle prize in Japan? It's purple. Would you eat it, Hoff? <laughs> P.S. The satay chicken recipe from Personal Trainer Cooking is excellent. Wow, there's a lot to unpack here. This is an excellent letter, first off. Yes, yes, indeed. She clearly shares the same passion for video game foods that we do. <laughs> indeed. Although I have to say, I don't think I would feel encouraged to try insect larvae. <laughs> you sure about that? Eh, well, I don't know. Yeah, to be honest, it's been such a long time since I have played the Golden Sun games, I totally forgot about that, but that does sound rather entertaining. <laughs> I do remember them talking about uh, various foods in Virtue's Last Reward as well, so that's another good call. I do kind of want to try some twice-cooked pork now. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
as for the monster curry from Breath of the Wild, you know, I was unaware of that. And uh, would I eat purple curry? Sure, I'd eat purple curry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it just has like beets. I love me in some it Japanese curry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because normally I try to stay away from purple foods like eggplant, nah, purple cabbage, nah, <laughs> purple curry. Yeah, I'll, I'll eat it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in fact, I really regret not getting this when I was in Japan. When I was over there, you could buy a package of Sonic the Hedgehog blue curry. Oh, wow. Yeah. This wasn't at a restaurant. If it was at a restaurant, I absolutely would have gotten some and tried it, but it was something you bought as a packaged food and had to prepare it yourself. And I'm like, <laughs> eh, I would probably just ruin it anyway, so I didn't end up getting it, but uh, it was definitely an interesting thing. Now, the chicken recipe she's talking about in personal trainer cooking, I actually... I don't know if I ever told you this, Hoff, but I actually did film sort of a promo video for Personal Trainer Cooking. Really? Yeah, I helped make the website for that one. Oh, nice. And we actually brought like three different groups of people into a studio and had them actually make these meals. <laughs> if I remember right, I think one of the couples did make sauteed chicken. Huh, nice, nice. And I think uh, I remember actually eating it once it was done and it was pretty good. All right. Very cool. Yeah, I have to admit, when we were making this list, we sort of intentionally avoided cooking games. Like, we didn't include <laughs> Cooking Mama or Personal Trainer Cooking or anything like that, because that would just kind of be cheating, and they would totally dominate all the other games that we would be uh, including in the big topic. But, uh, yeah, I can certainly see why that would lead to some good stuff. Absolutely. Moving on to the next letter, which comes from Logan Weber. He writes, Howdy, Power Pros. I've been listening since June 2018, and you guys rock. Wow. My favorite episode I've listened to so far has got to be the one about different Nintendo worlds and which ones you could visit. I remember when that one ended, I thought, where was Splatoon's world? I'd like to know your opinion on Inkopolis. Stay fresh, guys. <laughs> Stay fresh. I like that. So, any thoughts, Pete? Yeah, I mean, Inkopolis is pretty cool. I don't know why we didn't think of that. Or at least I don't know why I didn't think of it. Well, it's definitely, you know, a pretty excellent seeming place on the surface. It seems, you know, colorful and fun. But, you know, when you think a little deeper about <laughs> the world of Splatoon, you know, I do believe it is set in like a post-apocalyptic world where the humans have all been wiped out. So, you know, while it all seems like fun and games on the outside, you know, as a human... I might be a little wary about visiting there. So um, <laughs> maybe if I wanted to transform into a squid, I would want to go. Right. But I'd be a little cautious. Right. You, I feel like you'd be very limited there if you couldn't turn into a squid. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But in a lot of ways, yeah, it is a pretty excellent locale. And thanks for listening, Logan. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Why don't we close up the mailbag for this week and uh, take uh, a little bit of a... Uh, hold on there, buddy. Oh, why? What's going on? I think you're forgetting about a little segment called Hassle the Huff. Oh, oh, you're right. I did almost forget. Okay, all right. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Video game professor Hoffman. Yes? What is the dumbest thing you've ever done for the sake of video games? <laughs> and now, like, just to give you some ideas, like, you did you wait in a line for 100 hours to, like, buy a Dreamcast? Or did you... You know, play Odama with your butt cheeks, trying to, like, you know, get the high score. Hmm, well, I can't say I have done any of those things. I mean, the one that comes to mind, you know, is, again, uh, food-related. I guess this kind of ties into uh, the previous letter and to uh, last week's big topic. 
but that was when we did the cooking with power feature <laughs> back in Nintendo Power. And, uh, you know, that involved various things, you know, going to a photo shoot and, you know, having a squid stuck on my face <laughs> and being covered in cake batter and uh, things of that nature. And, of course, getting to pretend that I chopped off my own finger and uh, fed it to one of my coworkers. <laughs> so, I mean, that was definitely uh, very dumb in a lot of ways, but it was also very, very fun. Does that count? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, as far as, you know, just you know, dumb things like waiting in line. I haven't really done too much of that. I mean, probably waiting in like a two hour line to get like, was it the fourth wave of Smash Brothers Amiibo? It was the <laughs> one with Ness and Lucina. I waited for like two stinking hours to pre-order Amiibo at GameStop. And because they were doing this nationwide all at once, like all their servers crashed and no one was able to actually <laughs> order these things. And even though I was like the third person in line, I wasn't able to get the stuff. Wow. And it was just really stupid and annoying. <laughs> but, you know, that was only two hours. It wasn't like I waited overnight or anything like that. Right. So you could consider that a pretty dumb thing to do as well. Yeah, that, that's kind of dumb. I feel like dumb's kind of mean. I, I meant more ridiculous, but uh, I, think it, <laughs> I think it worked. Yeah. Going to E3, 20 years running. That's pretty ridiculous, too. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, I hope that answer meets your approval. Yes, it's sufficient. Okay. All right, then. I believe now we will take an intermission, and then when we come back, we'll discuss this week's big topic, which is Nintendo's biggest blunders. All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is Nintendo's biggest blunders. Now, this is kind of a weird big topic for us, because I feel like, you know, for the most part, we are pretty optimistic about most <laughs> things here. You know, we're, we're very positive, and this is a little bit on, you know, the negative side. That's what happens when you're talking about big blunders. <laughs> uh, also, in addition to that, you know, we should point out that Nintendo has done a lot of great things in the last, you know, 35 years or so of their history being involved with video games. And we talk about that most weeks. So, you know, this week is just going to be a little different. Instead of focusing on all these great things they have done, of which there are so many we could talk about, we are just sort of focusing on their blunders, because there have been a few. 
Yeah, and I mean, honestly, if you think about the list of times Nintendo did stuff and it paid off, <laughs> I would say that it's like a billion times longer than <laughs> the blunder list. Right. I mean, they're innovators. They are responsible for so many things that are great about the video game industry. Totally. Needless to say, there are a few and uh, they're worth discussing. Yes, yes, there are things on the other side of the scale, and that's what's going to be this week's big topic. So I guess we might as well dive into Blunderland <laughs> and uh, start with one of Nintendo's least successful video game systems. We're going to travel back to 1995 and the release of the Virtual Boy. Should we have like some time travel music? <laughs> I'll let you provide it. <laughs> Yes, the Virtual Boy. I remember, um, you know, going to my local video game store and seeing, you know, a shelf full of these bad boys. Mm -hmm. Yes, I remember, you know, it was probably sometime in the following year when I saw tons of them in the bargain bins. But yeah, I remember <laughs> seeing them, you know, filling the shelves at Toys R Us, seeing them on display at Toys R Us, being able to play it at Toys R Us. You know, it's this big, bulky, funky shaped red and black system. And you kind of wear it like a helmet, but it rests on the table. It's some weird hybrid. It's definitely not portable, but it's definitely not a console. And, you know, possibly the biggest drawback to this is that all the graphics were red, just red and black. And they're right there, like searing right into your eyeballs. <laughs> now, I can see why Nintendo thought that this might work. I mean, as far as picking one color, like, you know, essentially the original Game Boy did the same thing. Well, yes, yeah, it was monochromatic. It was, you know, not really black and white. It was more pea soup green <laughs> and black or pea soup green and whatever. But yes, it was monochromatic too. But I mean, red is a really harsh color. <laughs> Just having that, you know, piercing right into your eyes. I mean, that was what killed it for me. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference between red on black and, you know, different shades of green <laughs> is uh, there's a huge difference between those two. And it is. It's interesting to think if, if they'd done something different with the graphics, would it have done better? Well, I think that if it had full color graphics, it certainly would have helped. But then again, that would have also you know probably pushed the cost through the roof and it would have been completely prohibitive to do. So, yeah, what we got was this Virtual Boy, all with red graphics, but it was the first 3D. I mean, it was you know really pushing the envelope. It was going to be like, I mean, obviously not real virtual reality, not even like the virtual reality that we have now, but it was pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. And it was way before its time and it was just not able to really deliver a very pleasant experience. And so what we got was a system that did not live up to Nintendo's usual standards of success. It kind of flopped really hard. People didn't want to play a system like that. And it died off with only a handful of games ever being released. Yeah, and I think it actually suffered kind of from the same thing that real virtual reality has trouble with, and that is that it's hard to like watch someone else play it and know what they're doing. And so when someone was playing a virtual boy, if you were in the same room with them, you had no idea what they were looking at. <laughs> that's true, that's true. And there is something about that. Like you couldn't you know, it's hard to be social with a virtual boy. Yeah, that is very true. And the thing is, you know, it's not like all the games were bad or anything. You know, I certainly played a little bit of Wario Land, and that was really fun. I played some Mario Clash. And I don't remember a whole lot about it, but it seemed halfway decent. But yep. the main problem was, you know, even after I would play this for just a few minutes, I would take my eyes away, and, you know, they would just be hurt. And it'd be like, oh, man, this is really messed with my vision. I just can't play it. And so that's why even when I saw one of these things in the bargain bin, 
you know, the following year, it was like, nope, I'm not going to get that because I can't use it because it's just going to hurt my eyes at the best of times. So, yeah, yeah, it just seemed really ill-conceived to me. Yeah. Now, flash forward to, uh, I think, sometime in like 2003, I ended up buying a Virtual Boy uh-huh. off eBay with maybe, I don't know, something in the neighborhood of like seven games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am glad that I own it because I feel like it is an important part of Nintendo history. Yeah. But at the same time, like it is, I mean, it is... To just sit, put it on, and and power through a game for an hour, it's just yeah, not rough. It's not really happening. And they even had, you know, warning messages in the games that said like you shouldn't, you should take a break. And that's kind mm-hmm. of where Nintendo's first version of that showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of love to have one as well, just sort of as a collector's item. But I know I would never ever want to actually play it. So, yeah, I would definitely call this one of Nintendo's biggest blunders. Side note, my favorite thing to do is just lay on the floor and put it on my head <laughs> so that I don't have to like lean over and look into a little hole. Um, is that actually more comfortable or less comfortable? It is more comfortable, but it definitely still has the same feeling of wooziness after you get done. Okay. All right. Well, if I ever have the opportunity to play it that way, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> Please do. Okay. So another of Nintendo's blunders that we have talked about on the show before is when they were in the 16-bit era and they had that potential partnership with Sony for a CD add-on for the Super NES, but then they ended up you know, losing that partnership and uh, you know, things just totally kind of spiraled out of control because of all that. Yeah, this is a big one. I think this is the one that stands out to most people our age because this kind of happened right at the peak of like, you know, video games. Yeah, I mean, it was really during the heyday of Nintendo's success, and because of what unfolded there, it really changed the course of video game history. Yeah, it really did, and when you think about how big Sony is now in the marketplace for video games, it's unbelievable to think that that had a chance of not happening. Yeah, because you know they were supposed to do the CD add-on, but then they changed their minds. Sony went on to become a competitor by making the PlayStation on their own and not having it be associated with Nintendo instead. And then... After that, Nintendo decided to compound the problem because they're like, okay, CDs, they're just not working out. And, you know, first they were going to do it with Sony and then they decided to do it with Philips. And then they canceled their deal with Philips and they're like, you know what? We're just going to stick with cartridges for the next generation. Forget all the CD stuff. And, uh, you know, that again led to even more problems for them because, you know, while companies like Square Enix were like, yes, we love CDs, we love the fact it can hold lots of stuff, we know it's a very, very cheap way to store data, you know, Nintendo didn't want to do that. And so that was part of the reason that all of these third parties then that had been supportive of Nintendo during the 8 and 16-bit days were jumping ship. That's why Final Fantasy VII came out on PlayStation instead of on Nintendo hardware. So it really was this whole dramatic spiral that led to Nintendo losing control of the industry and losing its dominance back in the 90s. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, ultimately it comes down to simple math. I mean, if you make a game and you print it on a million cartridges, if you have to pay a dollar for each of those cartridges, <laughs> you just paid a million dollars to make your game. <laughs> so you better sell a million dollars worth of games. And then conversely, CDs cost about a penny or a fraction of that. You know, you print a million of those and you're not out so much money. Mm-hmm. So that's ultimately the reason a lot of publishers were like, okay, we can't do this. We can't afford to have a warehouse full of Superman 64 that's just not selling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is that, you know, cartridge costs weren't 
getting cheaper. They're actually going up and up as they were trying to increase the memory size and stuff. So it was just, you know, all kinds of problems. And it, you know, led to a situation where it took Nintendo, you know, a good 10 years to get back into a good position in the industry again. It wasn't until they came out with all new ideas with Wii that they were really able to get back on top. So, yeah, I mean, they finally got through it, but that was definitely a uh, big mistake on their part by letting that all happen. Of course, one of the biggest third parties that left Nintendo in that time was Square Enix, or Square at the Right, time. as I mentioned. And we're actually still feeling the ramifications of that today. Like, just uh, last year, they mentioned that they are going to release all these Final Fantasy games on Switch. <laughs> this is finally that happening. I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> That's right. that it's been this long. But yeah, 20... Yeah, more than 20 years. Yeah, uh-huh. 20 years. It's crazy. Yeah, we're finally going to get a sequel to Final Fantasy VI. We'll get 7 and 9 and 10 and 12 after all this time. All this time later. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. (laughs) It really is. Yep. So, aside from just sort of, you know, losing their position of dominance in the video game industry, there was one other aspect of this whole CD add-on debacle that I think we could consider a blunder. (laughs) And that is... When Nintendo dissolved their partnership with Philips, who was you know, supposedly going to make their ill-fated CD add-on after Sony was out of the picture, they compensated Philips by saying, hey, we'll let you guys use our IPs for your CDI system. And so that was where the fabled games came from. Uh, Link, The Faces of Evil, Zelda, The Wand of Gamelon, and Zelda's Adventure. Uh, yeah. Now, I admit I really haven't ever played those because (laughs) I don't know anyone who's crazy enough to have a CDI, but certainly I have seen the footage and I know enough to be able to tell, yeah, those games are probably every bit as awful as they look. (laughs) Now, I remember back in the day seeing one in a magazine and thinking, yeah, I need to play that. (laughs) Well, you might think that until you actually you know, <laughs> see what it's like running and realize that the CDI isn't really made for playing games. They're going to be sluggish and terrible and, oh my gosh, just really <laughs> are a blight on the Zelda name. Yeah, if you have time, go to YouTube and watch any of those that Hoffman yeah. just mentioned. Yeah, so really, it's not that you know this was a horrible, horrible thing for Nintendo, but by just totally giving up control over this IP and allowing it to exist out there. There are these terrible Zelda games out there. Yeah, I mean, that could have been really bad. I mean, the good thing is no one actually played these games, so it didn't really ruin the Zelda name. But, you know, it could have. If people actually played these games, I'm like, oh my gosh, Zelda is terrible. I never want to have anything to do with it. It could have burned down the entire franchise. But uh, luckily that did not happen. (laughs) It's true. And I think, you know, if anything, this might have also made uh, Nintendo a little more guarded of their IP as they are sort of notoriously. Uh, Yeah, yeah, probably did a little bit. I mean, in addition to the Zelda games, there was a Hotel Mario game, and supposedly that one's not quite as bad, (laughs) but uh, I'm pretty sure it's no Mario 64. I'm pretty sure as well. But yeah, speaking of, you know, letting people control their IPs, you know, the next item on our list here is indeed Super Mario Brothers, the movie. Now, if you've never listened to the episode of Power Pros where Chris Hoffman and I uh, <laughs> drink milk while we watch Super Mario Brothers, the movie. Yes, our feature-length commentary that we did uh, for the 25th anniversary. Uh, stop what you're doing right now and go do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then come back and, and we'll talk. We'll finish the rest of the episode. Yes. 
da 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 two hours later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as we discuss on that episode and a later episode of Power Pros, it was not exactly a very good movie. And again, it was a time where Nintendo just gave up control over their IP. They handed over it to some Hollywood execs and they didn't really seem to understand what it was all about. They just knew, hey, we can use this. It's popular. Let's make a quick buck. And again, it threatened to really damage Nintendo's brand in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, as we've said, almost nothing in the plot of that movie actually relates to the world of Super Mario Brothers. And, uh, right, right. I mean, there's lots of nods to it. There are character names and <laughs> objects and items and things that have, you know, their their names based <laughs> on Mario. But is it actually anything like Mario? No, no, it's not. No, and there's a king that's made of and uh yep the big old mucus king <laughs> and a realistic yoshi <laughs> yeah and of course spike and iggy <laughs> yes yes indeed and toad don't forget toad oh right yeah who could forget <laughs> but uh yeah i do think that you know as you were sort of hitting out with cdi games it really made nintendo wary and that's why we haven't really had Nintendo in that space for so long. You know, there are continued rumors about a Zelda TV show on Netflix and CG Mario movies finally coming back to the theaters. But it's taken this long for them to get over that stigma to finally do something multimedia based with their big brands. So Yeah, and it's funny. You think if this had done well, like if it somehow the movie was actually based on Super Mario Brothers and actually <laughs> somehow turned out to be good then uh, they might have done a lot more of that in between now and then. Yeah, yeah. Or think about a really bad scenario. What if the movie was super popular, even though it was just as crappy as it is now, <laughs> and that actually guided the future of the franchise? Ugh. What if, you know, Mario, Luigi, and all the characters from that movie, like, made their way into other games and stuff, and that's how it was seen by everybody. Like, oh, yeah, yeah this is great. Like, almost like Street Fighter, the movie, the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <Ugh>. exactly. <laughs> Real Bob Hoskins jumping around. I don't know if I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's thank goodness that that did not happen. That would have even been a bigger blunder, I think. <laughs> All right. Moving along then. In 2005, I was working for a magazine called Play. And at one time, some folks from Nintendo came by and demonstrated a new game for us. This game was called Nintendo Pennant Chase Baseball, and it was for the GameCube. <laughs> I can't say I remember a whole lot about this game, but, you know, it was Nintendo, you know, getting back into sports. You know, Nintendo has made some great sports games throughout the years. I'm not just talking about Punch-Out, I'm also talking about the Ken Griffey Jr. games. You know, they were actually a force to be reckoned with during that time, you know, NBA courtside. So Nintendo actually, you know, did have a bit of a reputation for making good sports games. So that didn't seem that crazy that they were doing this new one. But then, you know... After they came by, after they demonstrated it, they showed off at E3, and then, poof, it just kind of disappeared. <laughs> the release date came and went, and by all reports, the game was finished and approved and ready to come out, and they just scrapped it. <laughs> so, while a lot of the things that are on this list are things that Nintendo did that uh, you know weren't exactly the best ideas, they had severe repercussions, this one is on here just because... They wasted all these resources making this game, promoting this game, having this totally finished game, and then, you know, scrapping it. Just what a waste. 
Yeah, I don't know much about this one. I know that, uh, you know, it obviously didn't bear the name of King Griffey Jr., and that was partially because, uh, you know, as you know, Nintendo owned part of the Mariners, and mm-hmm. King Griffey Jr. was no longer a Mariner at this time. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it must just not have passed, you know, Nintendo's seal of quality. And uh, as we've just seen with Metroid Prime 4, if it's not up to snuff, they're not going to release it. So mm-hmm. I feel like you got to chalk that up to this. Yeah, I mean, it's very true. It's very possible that releasing the game would have been an even bigger mistake. But yeah, it's just so weird that they would take it that far into production to be showing it and having a release date and having all this stuff scheduled for it and then pulling it back at the last moment. Now, I am certainly no sports expert. I don't remember if I actually got a chance to play the game or if I was just watching it. But, you know, I don't have any real grip on if what I saw of it indicated it was a quality title or not. But yeah, I mean, there has to be a reason that they canceled it. It probably was not very good. And so it probably was for the best. It's just too bad that they wasted all that time, you know, making the game before they made that decision. Yeah, instead of making uh, Pro Wrestling 2. Exactly. Exactly. They should have invested in that. And then that franchise would be uh, up and super successful. No doubt about it. <laughs> Agreed. So fast forward a couple years later, and we've got E3... We've got Nintendo, it is the year 2008, and the Wii is a big success. Nintendo is sort of back on top of the world again, and everyone's excited to see what they do next with their brilliant new console. And what do they do at E3? They come out on stage with Wii music. (laughs) Yes, they did. Yeah, there's like a whole little stage production with Miyamoto and some musicians. They're all like dancing around, pretending to play their Wii remotes, like their musical instruments, like they're a saxophone or a drum set. And they're just going all out, just, uh, you know, totally getting their groove on out there, doing their thing. And the audience (laughs) is just sitting like, what on earth are we looking at? This is the most ridiculous thing we have ever seen. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking at the time, like, Man, I want to believe in this. You know, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe maybe when I get my hands on it, it'll all make sense. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, you know, when we came out of the gate, it was very, very strong. It appealed to people across the board. It appealed to my parents because it had, you know, Wii Sports Bowling and Wii Sports Tennis. It appealed to hardcore players because they had a new Zelda game. It appealed to, you know, racing game players because it had Excite Truck. You know, it was a very diverse array of games appeal to a very diverse set of people but uh, you would not know this judging from their 2008 e3 presentation no no you know it was really meant to be the music equivalent of wii sports or uh, you know something along those lines where yeah you're like oh you don't know how to play an instrument well here use your wii and we'll be able to play any instrument you choose <laughs> right right so they had that and then you know as if that weren't enough for that E3 presentation, they also, that was also the year where they had Sean White snowboarding. And so out comes Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing, Cammie Dunaway, and she is out there trying to do snowboarding with the Wii Balance Board, and it couldn't have been more awkward or been more unappealing to the audience that was out there. (laughs) I I don't know what else to say about that. I think you, you pretty much summed it up. Yeah, look it up online. It's it's very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable to be in the audience watching that. It's still kind of uncomfortable now. <laughs> I think I heard crickets <laughs> at one point. 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's totally true. <laughs> and, you know, then they also had some other stuff that year. They had Wii Sports Resort, which, you know, is certainly a decent game. But it's, again, not really the kind of thing you want to show off at E3. And the game that they thought, I think, probably was like their core game was Animal Crossing City Folk, which, you know, I am very excited for the new Animal Crossing. I know a lot of core players are excited for the new Animal Crossing, but when that is your most hardcore game, you know, that is just not enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back, it definitely was an odd choice all around. Yeah, I mean, everything they showed that year just kind of fell flat. It wasn't appropriate for the E3 audience. Nintendo was, like, going all in on the casual stuff, and it was just sort of a disaster. I mean, that was probably the beginning of the end for Wii. Yeah, yeah, it probably was. I mean, they still had some great stuff after that. We still had more great Mario games. We still had more great core titles. We even still had a lot of good third-party support. But, yeah, I feel like that's where it really started go downhill with Nintendo being all in on the casual and again, that just sort of led to a downward spiral. Didn't Nintendo even issue an apology? <laughs> I don't remember, but they certainly should have. There was an interview Cammy Dunaway gave where it said, We were disappointed with our performance at E3. There were titles like Wario, which we think will be really fun titles that we should have showcased. We were excited that Mr. Miyamoto made the commitment that Pikmin is coming. It would have been nice if we would have said that on stage. But we think it was a good recognition for us that we care for our core fans and not just the new people who are now discovering Nintendo. Well, they realize it at least, but uh, a little bit on the late side. It happens. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Now, on the other hand, in the year 2010, I think they had a really great E3. You know, it was, you know, a polar opposite of that disaster in 2008. And a big reason for that was the Nintendo 3DS. That was the first time they were showing it off, and, like, everybody loved it. Like, just walking around the show floor, that's, like, every developer, every third-party publisher was pretty much talking about was the Nintendo 3DS. And I've never felt such palpable excitement before at an E3 show. Yeah, I remember I was actually at that show, and I, I believe we ran into each other that time. <laughs> But yeah, when they first showed off the Nintendo 3DS and could actually like prove that you could see a 3D image with no glasses, that was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a mind-blowing game changer. Yeah, it was very, very exciting. Which is why it's so strange that fast forward to the system's launch early the following year, and I would have to say that is another one of Nintendo's big blunders. <laughs> oh, go on. I mean, Nintendo had all this support. There was all this excitement about the system, but somehow, between E3 2010 and the launch in early 2011, all that excitement had kind of fizzled out, and then they launched the system, which was still every bit as cool as it had been the previous year, but what did they launch it with? They launched it alongside Pilot Wings, Steel Diver, and Nintendogs Plus Cats. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of those games are awful, but they really are not system sellers in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot about all that. You know, I think part of it still goes back to that Wii mindset. You know, when they had the Wii out, it was like, you know, who is buying our stuff? Oh, it's all these casuals. The casuals are our big target market now. So when the 3DS launched, instead of having, you know, something for the hardcore players, instead of launching alongside a Mario or a Zelda or a Metroid, we have another Nintendogs plus Cats along with Pilot Wings and this you know, brand new IP that no one really knows what it is. 
Yeah, I think one of the saving graces that like Super Street Fighter 4 came out relatively early. Yeah, that was a launch title. That was there from Capcom, and that was probably the strongest game at launch, and it was there for the core fans. But you know, from Nintendo, it really did not have that really strong system-selling game. Yeah, you're right. It didn't. And, you know, we all remember what happened from there, I think. You know, it did not take off at launch, despite all that hype from the previous year. People just were not into it. It was selling very poorly out of the gate. And so, you know, after that, Nintendo's like, okay, we have to do something. They ended up having a massive price cut, and they ended up giving away these 20 free virtual console games to all of their current adopters. Yeah, that's right. To kind of make up for the people that spent all the money on the system initially. Right, right. And so they were able to turn it around. So, you know, give them a lot of credit for that. But, you know, somehow, despite that initial hype, they just, you know, kind of blew it going out the gate. Just didn't have the launch lineup, didn't have the software to support that initial rush of excitement. And, uh, yeah, it could have been a huge, tragic disaster for Nintendo. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think the big thing is they did turn it around. They did. And of course, I think it did lead to a 3DS redesign early on in the system lifecycle, really. That might have been a contributing factor, yes. I mean, it's not like the 3DS was a poorly designed system out the gate or anything like that. It's not like the original DS or anything where it really drastically needed a redesign. But yeah, it certainly might have been a contributing factor for sure. But yeah, I almost forgotten about that. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There was definitely a lack in titles and it showed through the first... Uh, how long? First nine months? Six months? Mm, something like that. I mean, I think it was early that summer where they really had sort of a relaunch and, you know, did the price cut. They had Ocarina of Time 3D ready at that point. So they really had one of their core brands on the system and, you know, was ready to go and, you know, sell systems to their fan base. So I don't think it was really that long. Yeah, but within six months, I think they really started to get things figured out. They really began to have a better breadth of titles on there and ended up turning into one of the best systems ever for Nintendo. But looking at it at launch, those first few months, oh man, you would never have known it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that that system is still around today. Yep, still alive and kicking, and I still love it. So moving on from there, Nintendo also had some issues with the launch of their next system. I mean, not only the launch, but, you know, almost everything surrounding the Wii U was kind of a big blunder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some would say that, you know, Nintendo is almost at its worst when it's doing really, really well. <laughs> yes, yes, I can understand where you're coming from. And, you know, again, it all spins off from the success of Wii. You know, Wii was such a hit, they were reluctant to give that up. And so, you know, they ended up doing the casual stuff for way too long, and they still had that mindset going into the 3DS. They still had that mindset going into Wii U. Because Wii was so successful, they're like, we have to keep that Wii name. And I think that was part of the mistake that led to that system's downfall. Yeah, I mean, I would be willing to believe that most people who saw a Wii U had no idea that it was anything more than a screen for the original Wii. Right, a lot of people really have that impression. And with that name, Wii U, it almost lent itself well to that. I mean, the confusion just like spiraled out of control, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially with the console looking relatively the same. Yep, yep. The colors being relatively the same. I mean, it still worked with Wii games. It still worked with the Wii remotes. So it was hard to tell unless you were a hardcore fan, unless you were reading Nintendo Power, you would probably not know that it was a brand new system. 
Yeah, and as you said, the name did it zero favors mm-hmm. because I think anybody talked about it, especially kids, was really hard to explain to your parents, like, why is this different? I mean, it's not as bad a name as Xbox One, but it's still a very bad name. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, it definitely should not have been named anything remotely Wii. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it just seems like there were so many bad things that came together with that system. Like, you know, again, I go back to E3. I go back to E3 2012. They had their presentation for this system. They were showing it off at their press conference. And this really sums up the Wii U to me. At the end of the conference, you know, they were kind of touting the system. There hadn't been any killer software or anything like that. We were still kind of waiting for the the big killer apps that was going to get everybody excited about Wii U. At the end of the presentation, these balloons were supposed to drop out of the rafters as like, you know, some big uh, you know party celebration thing. And the case where they were held opened up and the balloons did not come down. <laughs> like the balloons just sat up there. They did not fall onto the floor. That just symbolizes all of Wii U. They had this cool stuff there, but uh, they didn't really do anything with it. It didn't go as planned. It just sat there. Unwanted and unloved. Yeah, if you looked up, you'd be like, oh, wow, yes, I see a bunch of balloons up there, but they're all in a box. They are not coming down here for some reason. They're probably filled with helium. I don't know. I don't think that was the case. I don't know what went wrong, but it really sums up Wii U in a nutshell. But I mean, what did they have at launch? You know, Nintendo Land, that was the pack-in. You know, it just really didn't captivate people's imagination. Again, it was more like a tech demo and... You know, very much was targeting that casual audience, which by then had already moved on. I mean, sure, there was another new Super Mario Brothers game, and you can't really go wrong with that. And it's an excellent game, and I'm glad to have it on Switch. But it just felt like more of the same. It felt like, hey, we already have a 2D new Super Mario Brothers game on Wii. You know, do we really care about this one on Wii U? What's new about it? I don't really know. You know, they were just really into all that casual stuff. I remember one of the games that was at launch that we reviewed at Nintendo Power was I think called Sing Party, which was a karaoke game. <laughs> and you know, I remember the reviewer gave it a pretty high score, partially based on the fact it was going to have all this DLC down the road. It never had a single bit of DLC. It didn't have ever anything more than was what was on the disc. Well, that's, so. that's because it didn't sell very well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it had all these promises, and they were not fulfilled. And, yeah, it was just sort of a disaster all the way around. But it really centers on just having a really poor launch. If they had had some great first-party titles at launch, it could have been a very different story. But then again, like we said... With them continuing to rely on that Wii brand and how similar it was to the other system, it would have been a really hard sell no matter what. And it's kind of funny because I actually think that controller is great. I love the Wii U controller in a lot of ways. In some ways, I would say it's one of my favorite Nintendo controllers. It has like everything you could possibly want. It has joysticks. It has D-pads. It has a touchscreen. It has a microphone. (laughs) You know, as a you TV can remote, play it wirelessly. <laughs> it has that as well. Oh, that was that was a disaster in itself. I can't believe they wasted time and money on that. <laughs> oh, that was so ill conceived. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not talk about that. Oh, that was a disaster. What, what was it? What was it called? Oh, uh, I, can't even I don't remember. TV or some shit. TV with two eyes or something yeah, like that. Something like that, man. Oh no, something ridiculous. And the weird thing about that is that unlike 3DS, you know, where they tried to salvage it with a price cut and all this other stuff, they never did anything for Wii U. It came out, it floundered. Did they cut the price? Did they offer free things for people who were already on there so they could be like, yes, this is awesome? No, they just let that thing go out there and die. (laughs) Yeah, I think they really needed it to kind of just take some time in the marketplace so they could brew up Switch. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there are, you know, some huge similarities between that and Switch. And we've talked about that before. We've said, you know, without the experiments and possibly the failures of Wii U, we might never have gotten the Switch. It's true. But uh, still, you know, it's just crazy how <laughs> many things went wrong with the launch of that system. Yeah, I think the uh, speediness of the uh, Switch's hardware to the Wii U's hardware being just not speedy at all. <laughs> yeah. Like when I booted it up to download some things off the Wii Shop channel the other day, I was like, wow, I forgot how slow this UI is. Yeah, it was very, very sluggish. And it was Nintendo TV with two eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, no one's mourning the loss of that. No one at all. <laughs> okay, so while we're on the subject of bad launches, there is one more systems launch that I would have to qualify as a big blunder. And while this has pretty much totally been reversed, for a time it looked like the NES Classic would have to sit here on the list of biggest blunders just because it was so darn hard to get. Now, I feel like this one kind of wronged you, and then you're taking it personally a little bit. Mm, didn't wrong me. I actually made out pretty well with this one. No. Oh. I mean, I did wait in the line, and I haven't done that very often, but I actually enjoy waiting in the line. But, you know, it paid off for me. I got my system. I got my controller. You know, there were only, like, four controllers to go for the 40 systems, but I managed to get one. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I lucked out. Nicely done. But for everybody else, I mean, you know, you couldn't get a second controller. You couldn't find one of these to save your life. And Nintendo was like, oh, yeah, they're limited. Once they're gone, they're gone. And that just seemed so poorly conceived. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, in theory, it's kind of like uh, it's a fun idea. But in reality, there's a lot of kids crying. Uh, I think probably more adults than there are kids, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, those of us who grew up with our NESs that uh, wanted to get this thing. Yeah, get one for their kids. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, just the unavailability of it was, you know, a complete disaster. And, you know, they could have been selling way more systems than they had available. And, you know, they just couldn't meet demand. And it seemed like they were never going to meet demand. They were just going to be like, well, tough luck, gamers. You don't get anything, <laughs> especially a second controller. I remember, you know, I didn't even work in Nintendo at the time, and I was still getting hit up for the systems. Like, hey, do you have any way to get uh -huh. uh, your hands on one of these? You know, people coming out of the woodwork. Well, even if you were, I mean, I knew Nintendo employees at the time, and, you know, they were very, very limited to get them as well. So if you had been there, it would have been tough. It would have been tough. Yeah. You know, fortunately, that is all in the past now. It has all been reversed. I actually was at the store a couple of weeks ago, and I'm finally seeing, you know, these stacks of NES classics. I mean, that was the plan at the time. That's what they were supposed to be. Right. You know, there are going to be tons of these systems here in stores. Because, you know, that was the thing. There were no pre-orders. That was what compounded the debacle of the NES Classic launch. The pre-orders were almost impossible to get. Right. So, yeah, that's what led to me standing in a freaking line. Yeah, and then, like you said, having the controller be separate was a nightmare as well. So, you know, obviously they learned that lesson and, you know, took that into the Super Nintendo Classic launch. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they clearly learned a lot of things. They made the Super NES Classic, you know, much better, included the controller. Pre-orders were actually available, and the system was not super limited. And then they finally reversed course with the NES Classic and decided to make it readily available. And you can still actually get them to this day, which, I don't know, maybe Nintendo regrets that, but I certainly don't. <laughs> Nope. But uh, yeah, for a while, for you know a good year, that was a, a big Nintendo blunder. I'm glad it's been fixed. But yeah, that was certainly uh, <laughs> getting to a lot of gamers for a long time. Yeah, for sure. So that pretty much wraps up our list here. Is there anything else you want to mention before we finish off? Uh, no, I think that's pretty good. I'm going to name just one more thing then. Oh boy. And that is the huge, terrible mistake 
of allowing Nintendo power to be shut down. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any definitive evidence for this, but I'm pretty sure it's no coincidence that right when Nintendo power ended, that was right when the Wii U became a big old flop. I mean, obviously, if they hadn't closed Nintendo power down, you know, we would have been singing its praises and it would have uh, totally been a big hit. And we would have been able to say, no, it's not just a add-on controller for the Wii. And, uh, you know, they never would have uh, gone down that dangerous path of the failure of Wii U. But that's what happens when you let your magazine close its doors. <laughs> yeah, you uh, certainly can't argue against that. I think you probably could, but I'm probably just a little bit biased. Certainly had a lot of good readers. Yes, yes it did. But it'll always live in our hearts and minds, Chris. And on my bookshelf as well. Anyway, that does it for this week's big topic. So I think it is time to wrap up this week's episode of the podcast. However, before we go, we do have time for one more thing. And as you might have guessed, Pete, that is a dramatic reading. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. This time is a description from the Nintendo eShop for a Switch game known as Agartha S. The newest action game that makes feel nostalgic is born here now. <laughs> you will become an explorer and aim for the utopia Agartha deep in the ground. Cellular automaton reproduces natural phenomena in the underground world, which is the same physical law as the real world. Water flows. Rocks pile up and collapse. The steam condenses into water by coldness, and when the temperature falls further, it turns into ice. Plants grow in soil. Magma warms the circumference, and oil ignites. Gunner, Esper, Wizard and Ninja, even to Pharma. <laughs> Break through every nature by making free use of abundant adventurers. What can you find at the Utopia, Agartha? I hope you to check it with your own eyes. <laughs> wow, that last line. That's uh, it's almost as good as all your base are belong to us. <laughs> In fairness, I have not played this game, but uh, from what I have seen from videos online, it doesn't look half bad i mean the graphics are obviously very very archaic by design but uh, you know it could be fun and the music you know i have to admit you know normally i go very far out of my way to get actual music from the game to go with my dramatic reading mm -hmm. i have not been able to find it for this game but the music i have heard from it so far is pretty darn rocking chris i feel like you need to buy this it's only 7.99 come on it's only 7.99 i might want to check it out and, uh, you know, with a sales pitch like that, you know, it's hard to refuse. <laughs> well, I feel like you might need to check it with your own eyes. <laughs> I might. Uh, if I do, I will be sure to let you know how it goes. I like the name of the publisher. Oh, what's that? Mebius. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> Me neither. Anyway, that does it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com, and you can follow us at powerprospod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Pete at BurlyRedYeti. You can email us at PowerProsPod at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, of course, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Bashad. Stay fresh, guys. And the strongest woman in the world, Chun-Li. We will see you next time.